Hello and welcome. This is Brian Wilson of Combat and Classics, and I'm with uh, Martin L. Cook. Martin is a uh, professor at the United States Air Force Academy and has a long history in teaching ethics within the military. And today we wanted to just talk with Martin uh, about a couple things as it relates to ethics in the military, the, the, the teaching uh, and the learning of ethics in the military, um, and how that ties in with the great book. So first off, Martin, thanks for joining us. Uh, Martin is our first interviewee for this Combat and Classics podcast and this iteration. So Martin, I just want to start with, uh, if you could talk a little bit about um, you know, your current position at the Air Force Academy and what you're doing out there. Okay, well, I'm now the uh, Distinguished Visiting Professor in the Philosophy Department at the Air Force Academy. It's my fourth time at the Air Force Academy. I've been here, uh, first time was 91, 92 as a visiting professor. Um, back in those days, there were no permanent civilians on the faculty, so there was only one civilian per department per year, so that was a very different environment than the environment now, which is about 30% uh, civilians in the academy. Um, so I'm teaching the core philosophy course, which is a combination of just war theory, um, great books, Plato, Aristotle, Kant, Mill, things like that, and a block on military professionalism, that's a key member of the profession. I moved back here just this summer uh, with the intent of retiring in Colorado Springs probably next summer. And how did you get into um, this study and teaching of ethics within the military? It's a kind of funny story. I uh, grew up in the Air Force. My father flew bombers in the Cold War, uh, B-47. So nuclear, I grew up on nuclear weapons bases. So I thought about that stuff a lot as a kid. And then I came of age in the middle of the Vietnam War. So I had to really think that through and concluded the Vietnam War was not a just war. Uh, I was scared like a lot of my generation by a student deferment from having to really deal with the draft. So by the time I graduated in 73, the war was largely over. Uh, so I never really had to face that, but uh, I struggled long and hard about what I was going to do, about whether I would go to Vietnam or not. And, uh, what I ended up saying I would do to my draft board was I would accept non-cadet service, but not that service, uh, which would have made me a medic or a chaplain's assistant or something like that. Uh, whether they would have let me do that, I don't know, which never came to show. Um, so I just went on to graduate school, and I studied undergraduate philosophy and classics at the University of Illinois, and then. I uh, did my master's and PhD at the University of Chicago and took the job at Santa Clara University in California and really didn't. I taught one course on uh, ethics and war throughout my entire civilian career. Um, actually, I did a year at William and Mary before I went to Santa Clara. That was the height of the nuclear freeze movement. So the college did a uh, campus wide thing on uh, war. So I, that's how I created my first uh, dust war course. And I just kept that in my portfolio for the time I was at Santa Clara. It wasn't really a major thing. I didn't publish in the area. I didn't research in the area. I just taught the course. And then out of the blue in uh, 1990, I got a call from uh, the head of philosophy department at the Air Force Academy, inviting me to be a visiting professor at the academy. So I came here. Um, and while I was here, the first Gulf War happened. And uh, several of my Air Force colleagues uh, were troubled by some of the things they'd seen in the air campaign in, in Iraq. And so we wrote a couple of articles, and I quickly discovered that uh, the universe of people who had PhDs in philosophy and ethics and who knew something about the military was very small. And so that from a scholarly point of view, it was a lucrative area to write in because uh, very few people combined those two bits of knowledge. For me, the military stuff was mostly just tacit. But, you know, I learned to fly before I learned to drive. So I've been around aviation all my life and uh, have been interested in it. So I, uh, and I knew a lot about air power. So it was really easy to start writing about that. 
Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up, especially with the the background and kind of the you know the nuclear era, right? While also you know the the first exposure being the Vietnam War and you know counterinsurgency war uh, combined with the conventional war, and then this nuclear era, and then this air war. What what are the consistent themes that you've seen in kind of studying ethics throughout that those different eras? Are there are there similarities? Are there vast differences? Well, I think the guiding thing, certainly for the nuclear for the nuclear stuff and for air power, the abiding concern has always been: can you even claim to be respecting uh, discrimination or distinction that is not targeting civilians? Uh, you know, and certainly the Air Force behavior during uh, World War II was indiscriminate. Um, in fact, in that great uh, film, The uh, Fog of War, about Robert McNamara, uh, at one point he says, you know, LeMay said, who was the commander of the air commander in, in Europe and then in Japan, you know, if we don't win this war, we're going to be tried as war criminals. And that was the abiding theme in air power. So what got me interested specifically in air power was the attempt to make it discriminative again, you know, with increasing use of precision munitions uh, of various types, beginning with television-guided bombs at the end of Vietnam and then onto uh, GPS and laser stuff and the first Gulf War and so forth. So there seems to be a kind of difficult horns of a dilemma. And for our audience that's mainly interested in great books, we'll get there. But now I'm <clears throat> taking us down a little bit of a rabbit hole on this. Uh, and this might tie into the conversation with just kind of general military ethics um, is look how far we've come, right, from the Curtis LeMay uh, era, um, you know, from firebombing in Dresden, from Hiroshima and Nagasaki to precision guided munitions to, you know, White House oversight of drone strikes um, to this level of detail that is, you know, notionally going into targeting. Um, and then there's, you know, kind of another side of that coin, which is, well, civilians are still getting killed. And it seems to be an interesting, you know, is, is that reflective, do you think, of um, a higher standard of ethics uh, that, you know, the military could point to and say, you know, it's getting better? Um, or is it, uh, and just, you know, an acceptable, uh, quote unquote, acceptable, um, you know, loss of civilian life? Or is it something that is just like, well, no, it's still unethical to kill civilians. And so, you know, a stricter guidance, uh, a, a closer look at those issues is, you know, necessary to get that number as close to zero as possible and or look at how war is being conducted as a whole and targeting is being conducted and take a different approach or a different look at it. Well, I mean, sorry, the obvious is always prima facie wrong because civilians. <laughs> you don't want to do it if you can possibly avoid it. You probably saw that the military law manual that came out last week uh, puts stricter standards in than the ones that were there before. But, you know, civilians will be killed in any war. That's why war is a horrible thing. So um, the test is a real no kidding proportionality calculation. Um, and uh, in fact, the exam question I gave on my final exam to cadets just uh, last week was, I made them in charge of a targeting plan in, a, in an urban area and said, tell me what ethical things you've got to think about when you designate targets. I'm going to give you access to these weapon systems and I'm going to give you this software to model blast effects and tell me what you want to do with that stuff. Uh, how are you going to do it? But, um, you know, I, I wrote an article once uh, about the Kosovo campaign called Immaculate War. Uh, it doesn't exist, of course. Um, you know, always be civilian deaths. So, uh, in in kind of looking at you know these complex issues, you know, you've brought in very frequently, um, you know, the Great Books program or Great Books as a as a lens to look through that. Um, you know, I was just looking at your your book, um, 
the moral warrior uh, and you know you bring it back to Pericles and you bring it back to Athens and Sparta uh, as a way to kind of look at the intended and unintended consequences of war um, and so talk about a little bit how you've utilized kind of the great books in your teaching and how well that's resonated for your students and um, you know other people you've talked to about that well as I think you know right I just came here this summer from the Naval War College and for your uh, audience that are not familiar with it, the War College is the highest level of professional military education. So these are senior officers, uh, 05s and 06s, Navy commanders and captains, uh, lieutenant colonels and colonels. Uh, there I taught two courses. Uh, I taught Thucydides, uh, which we call the Asian War, uh, with a classical historian. And once a year we read that with about 20 students cover to cover, uh, very carefully, uh, with a large book of maps in front of us. and. Uh, uh, the typical review from the students was everything in the war college curriculum is in this book. Uh, uh, why, why don't uh, they teach it in their core course, but they do it very quickly. Uh, they assign a whole lot of pages and they discuss it maybe for two classes. And so they don't get the depth uh, reading of it. But I really do think that Thucydides is, as he himself said, a work for all time. You know, it's, uh, uh, it, it raises everything. Uh, the other course I taught was the Stockdale course. And that was created by Admiral Stockdale, who was our senior prisoner of war in Vietnam. Um, he was badly tortured. He was there for seven years. Uh, when he came out of Vietnam, um, he went to Coronado for a year to get his body put back together and uh, filed charges against uh, people he thought had not lived up to the code of conduct. But uh, he believed that his study of philosophy at Stanford, when he was really sent there to study economics and he just got bored with it and went over the philosophy department, was what got him through the POW experience, in particular the Roman Stoics. And so uh, what do you do with an admiral who's been out of the Navy for about 10 years? You know, he, he can't put him in a command somewhere. So they made him the president of the Naval War College. And one of the first things he did was to say, I want to create a philosophy corps. And so he did with the help of a philosopher named Rhinelander at NYU. And they put together this course where they read uh, the great books. Um, so that course has existed at the Naval War College in some form or other ever since the mid-1970s. Um, and when, when students choose which war college they're going to go to, frankly, one of the, the things that people know about is the Stockdale course that exists only at the Naval War College. So we get people to come there. Um, and when we go around the first day of class and ask, why did you take this course? The typical answer is, well, my boss in my last job told me when he was here, he took it. It was the best course he took. So, um, so there we read Plato and Aristotle and Kant and all and the vast majority of my students there had never read these books ever. Uh, they were mostly technical people. Um, their degrees were usually a technical subject. And certainly they'd been nothing but military practitioners for 20 plus years. So um, it was a very eye-opening experience for them. But we ended up creating a list of about 100 books to give them at the end of the course of other things you might want to go read. And so uh, many, many of them do and, and kept in touch. And, a few of them have invited me to come speak at their units when they went to command at the 06 level. And, uh, um, so that interest continues to carry on for them. I know for me, you know, part of the reason that uh, I actually got out of um, military service was just because uh, I had to go to command and staff college. Yeah. And um, that was after uh, my St. John's experience. So uh, you know, went to the Naval Academy, was in active duty reserve Marine, and then started attending um, command and staff college night school. And, uh, it was, it was a difficult transition for me, uh, to go from sitting around a table 
and uh, with St. John's students and starting with an opening question and having a dialogue about, you know, what you just, what you mentioned, Plato and Mill and Kant and those kind of things to back, you know, to what I was used to in, in the military, which is these are the three things you need to learn about X talk for an hour, mostly the instructor. Okay. These were the three things I hoped you got out of that. Um, you know, how, how much do you feel like, uh, this is a softball to a degree, but do you feel like that's limiting in people's, I guess, groking in people's internalization of ethics specifically and these more complex uh, issues? And how do, how, do you, how do you try to combat that? Well, um, it is very limiting. Uh, another thing I did at the War College was I spent two hours with every iteration of the uh, major command course, which was everybody taking command in the Navy at the level of an 06 at um, and we talked about these, these matters for a couple of hours. And the typical comment part at the end was, how come nobody's talking about this in my entire career? Um, you know, we just never talked about it. Now, I will say the Navy schools, uh, did you go to the Navy, Command Staff College? Uh, no, Marine Corps. Marine Corps. Mm -hmm. The Navy uh, schools are funny in that they are academically by far the best for the weird reason that the Navy is the service cares the least about them. Uh, that, that is, the Navy doesn't really value education particularly, it values time and fleet. Um, and so the effect is they have the schools, but they don't want to send their best people to run them. So they end up letting you run more like civilian schools than any of the other service professional military education institutions. So that would be true at the Naval War College, I think it's true at the Naval Academy as well compared to the other service academies. There's just a lot more civilians around and it's more like a civilian environment. So. Um, I think you get a better chance of getting some kind of decent education out of Navy schools than other schools. Yeah, I mean, I think that I I, I can relate to that to a degree just because, you know, uh, people talk to me, uh, you know, whenever I meet somebody who's civilian, we just start talking about ethics of the military, which I will steer the conversation towards occasionally. Um, and, you know, they'll talk about how, oh, you're in the military, you're taught, you know, to do what you're told. And, I would just, you know, I, I say to them, you'd be shocked at the amount of time that was spent at the Naval Academy and in the Marine Corps in getting trained on not to do what you were told. <laughs> the, the, the level of time and effort spent doing that is, you know, it's really looking back astounding. Um, but it, it almost happens, it seems to happen almost accidentally, right? Most of, you know, the formal education is built around, you know, techne, right? The technical aspects of your job and not, you know, the, the episteme, how it all comes together and how it relates to, you know, universal norms and universal laws. Um, but I don't have a lot of experience in, you know, looking at how the army does that or looking at how the air force does it. So, I mean, have you, you, you mentioned that, you know, the Navy has the, the, the best education. What, what are the differences that you've seen in kind of ethical outlook between the branches? Well, as I, I think you know, Brian, I, I taught at the Army War College for five years. Mm -hmm. I taught at the Air Force Academy and then the Naval War College. So I worked for all three services in some way, other, although at the Air Force only at the uh, pre-commissioning level. Mm -hmm. I, um, I would say there is a tendency to focus on ROE, rules of engagement. Uh, uh, if you talk to the Army lawyers, they'll tell you, in fact, when I first went to Carlisle the Barracks, uh, the Army War College, I met an old crusty old jag and said, well, why do we need you? We got, we got lawyers, you know, we got <laughs> people to teach ethics here. Um, I, I think it is fair to say though, that, you know, we tell you that you're supposed to obey only legal orders and to disobey manifestly illegal orders, but we don't spend a lot of time 
teaching you to see to recognize that when you see mm-hmm. it, and certainly how to proceed. Um, there's an excellent book by a friend of mine named Mark Ociel called Obeying Orders. Now, Mark is a lawyer, professor of law, and that whole book is about what would it mean to take it seriously that we should train, actually train military people who would be prepared to disobey illegal orders, how to recognize them, what they're, how to proceed if they decide they're going to do that, uh, what kind of legal protection should we give them uh, if they sincerely believe the orders are legal, even if it turns out they're mistaken in their belief. Um, those kind of questions. We don't go very deep into that. Um, I do it in class here, but uh, I think once uh, cadets leave the Air Force Academy, they're unlikely to hear about this for a long time. Well, it's 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 heartening to a certain degree, you know. In in kind of preparing for this interview, I, I looked up, you know, several of the talks that you've given, and um, you know, some of your news appearances in the last year uh, or one year or two years ago, when you know Petraeus was relieved at CIA, and um, you know the Navy was dealing with uh, the corruption charges with um, Fat Fat Joseph. Was it Fat Fat Leonard? Fat Leonard. Um, and you were, you know, um, you know, appearing in, in news stories and, you know, commenting on that stuff and you use the, you use the phrase, uh, which, which I've always really enjoyed that, you know, uh, a Lance corporal will get in more trouble for losing a rifle than a general will, uh, for losing a war. Uh, I'm wondering, uh, you know, what your thoughts are now and, you know, you've had this very lengthy career in military ethics. Um, have you seen, has that always been true? Has that, has that changed, you know, in recently in the last few years or decades? Like, what's your view on that? Well, I think it has changed for the better. Uh, I can only really speak with any authority about the Navy at mm-hmm. best at the senior levels. But um, right after Petraeus was fired, uh, General Dempsey was then the chairman of the Joint Chiefs. He made a meeting in Washington over Saturday, and he, uh, and he spent the whole day with 11 of us uh, just trying to figure out what's wrong with my senior officer corps, what, and what can I do about it. Um, and he was really very troubled, because in the Navy, we were firing a relatively senior person, you know, uh, an 05, an 06, our command master chief, about every two weeks. And 85% of those were for personal misconduct. And so the question was, what's up with that, right? And so uh, um, it led me down a line of research I hadn't ever previously dabbled in, which is um, to question the empirical social science on this. Um, you know, when military people talk about ethics, they talk in almost entirely Aristotelian terms. They talk about character and integrity, and, and that suggests an implicit view that once you develop these virtuous habits that you're pretty much good to go in any environment and so forth. And, um, and that's how they, so just hasn't talked about it, that's what they'll tell you. But that doesn't explain why somebody who's been in the service 25 years is screwed up in a big way, right? It's really, if, if there was something to the character habit account, they ought to be there by now. Um, and so I started reading a bunch of uh, moral psychology literature. And what that shows you is that changes in the environment you're in, even intuitively very small ones, will lead to dramatic changes in the way you actually behave. And so I started comparing that with the way Navy careers evolved. And it turns out transitions to 05 and 06 are quantum leaps in the, in the changed nature of the social environment, in the, in the sense that when you're a younger officer, you're a part of a crew, you're a department head, you're surrounded by other department heads, you have a big social support system. By the time you're a, a captain, that's all gone. You don't have any peers around you anymore. Um, you're kind of on your own. And so um, books that are influenced me a lot on this are um, Dan Ariely's book, uh, The Honest Truth About Dishonesty, or Jonathan Haidt's book, uh, The 
The Righteous Mind. Uh, these, these are excellent books. And uh, uh, so I started talking a lot about to senior officers, especially the major command course. I would just increasingly go in there and say, look, uh, you got 20 of you in here. You don't, none of you believe this, but one of you is going to be on the front page of the Navy Times in the next two years. Uh, and none of you think it's you. But uh, let, let's talk about why that's going to happen to them. Um, and then we go down that conversation about the environment and how it changes. Um, so uh, is that helpful? No, that's, I mean, that's extremely helpful. I mean, and, and, it, and it touches upon, you know, the universality of human nature, right? There's in the Marine Corps, we have the saying, which is, you know, you put one Lance Corporal in a room with three ball bearings and he's going to lose one, he's going to burn one, and he's going to eat one, right? And, you know, the, the, the same thing might be true of an 06 Navy captain, right? If you leave him alone and unafraid, like he's going to mess up. And so that tribal structure, um, that peer group, and how much that drives you versus being kind of on your own um, without that peer group to kind of help you figure it out um, or, you know, be able to rely on. I think that that's something that um, I hadn't really thought about before, especially around the senior leadership piece. Um, so one of the things uh, Dempsey said at that meeting was, uh, uh, if you think about the major commanders, the regional vet commanders like CENTCOM and TACOM, um, they really have no adult supervision. They report directly to the president through the sector. Um, the chairman has no command authority over them whatsoever. So they're outside the military chain of command for all practical purposes. Um, so one of the things Dempsey said uh, that he was going to try to do was to create inspection teams to go out to those commands and look at them. I said to him at this meeting, look, uh, wouldn't that take a change in the law? I mean, you don't have any authority over these guys. He said, well, no, I've read the law very carefully. And it says, I, I have other duties assigned by the president. So if I can persuade the president to assign the duties to inspect the co-founds, then I got that and I have that authority. So that's, and that's what he did. Yeah, it's, 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 it's fascinating. And I think, you know, what I, what I keep coming back to in, in kind of the, the examples of this and in looking at the training uh, piece of it is, you know, it's, it's hard to, you know, I, I have a, I have a knee jerk instinct for, well, if we just sit around the, a table and talk about the great books then this stuff will get better. Right. And that's not necessarily true. You're still going to have people that, um, you know, shouldn't be in the jobs they're in and can't handle the pressures of their jobs they're in. Um, and there's a lot, and it's not that they're bad people. It's just that they're in a situation that, you know, they haven't, they can't cope with. Right. Cool. Um, and well, Ariely talks about in his book that I used to cite all the time for military people because I think it's highly relevant. He did a study of cheating um, and he did it at Carnegie Mellon in Pittsburgh. And the study was students come into a room and there's a set of math problems and there's an envelope of money on each desk. They're asked to solve as many math problems as they can and then to pay themselves out of the envelope for the number of correctly solved problems and to tear up the answer sheet. So it's, it appears they could cheat with impunity and leave. Um, and in the default condition, uh, they cheat a little bit. They pay themselves like one or two problems more than they that solve. But nobody takes it all. Uh, and his, his theory about that is we all have what he calls a personal fudge factor. We're willing to bend the rules a little bit, but we want to feel okay about ourselves. Right? But then the experiment is he puts an actor in the room. And as soon as the uh, experimenter explains the experiment, the actor stands up and says, I've solved them all, takes all the money, and walks out of the room. And the question is whether the intervention of the actor will increase or decrease cheating in the rest of the group. And the counterintuitive answer is it depends what sweatshirt the actor wears. If the actor wears a Carnegie Mellon sweatshirt, the same school as where the experiment's being done, then cheating does in fact go way up. But if they wear a Pitt sweatshirt, the school on the other side of town, you want to feel better than, 
and it goes below the norm uh, in, in the default case. Right? Um, and his, the theory about that is it's all about your team, right? What your team is perceived as tolerating or perceived as thinking is appropriate behavior. So then I say to the military guys, look, you already know this. If I push the other button, not the, not the ethics button, but the leadership button, you're going to tell me about unit climate and the importance of unit cohesion, right? And, and what you're telling me there, and you all know this from your experience, is different units have de facto different ethics. And when you're the newbie, you try to figure out how to fit into the group. And it's very unlikely that you're going to, you're going to buck the system uh, in any fundamental way. So I think if you look at the Fat Leonard scandal, which is the biggest scandal the Navy has ever had, I mean, uh, CNO told, was in a room full of admirals, told a hundred of you were under investigation, a hundred admirals. Basically, uh, anybody who was your take on that period is, is hated to some degree. Uh, you either assume we sent a whole lot of bad apples to pay on, or you assume something like the Ariely sweatshirt explanation, right? You got there and this is how we do it. Which, which, you know, comes back to, you're not going to fix this with great books <laughs> and <laughs> seminars, um, but they could help. <laughs> in fact, one of my former students, one of my favorite students about a year ago, is now on trial in San Diego for attempted rape and sexual assault. Um, and we read a lot of great books. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, it, it's, a, it's a very strange problem to try to wrap your head around. Um, and it's, it's certainly not a panacea. Uh, in trying to kind of solve these these big picture issues, and even you know what, what we started off with with you know these kind of fundamental ethical questions, right? ROE uh, is not imparting ethics, and ROE does not guarantee ethics. Um, it's you know similar to the sweatshirt. Uh, you know how much are you going to move the needle um, a little bit? I think a lot of it, you know, it comes down to understanding those first principles, right? And so you know, I was. A, it's heartening to hear folks, you know, in, in conversation when we talk about, you know, what, what is, what is correct, what is ethically just, um, to hear somebody of your seniority to go, you know, prima facie killing civilians is wrong. Like, cause sometimes that's a hard thing to get out of somebody's mouth. You know, it's, it's more difficult. And I, you know, I think that's also tribal as well. You know, I spent the last 10 years in Washington, DC. I spent some of that time as a defense contractor. Um, and you know, sometimes it'd be, that would be, okay. we know this, we understand this. And other times it'd be like, well, you know, and it's, it's not that, it's not that given, it's not that exploration of first principles. Um, and so I'm wondering, you know, you, you mentioned, you know, several books, uh, obeying orders and the righteous mind and, and that kind of thing that, that, and I, and I've, I haven't read obeying orders. I have read re- the righteous mind and enjoy uh, a lot of hates writings, um, I'm wondering how, you know, a lot of these, I think, lead back to the great books, though, to some degree. Um, I'm wondering what you, what you see as a way for folks that are interested in understanding these first principles, a way to kind of delve more deeply. You know, how do they go about that? You know, do they, do they even need the great books or can they get that from hate? Can they get that from, you know, Osceola and Ariella? Um, you know, or, or, you know, do they need to go deeper than that? Well, I think you know, Stockdale himself is really funny on this. Uh, he, when he created the Stockdale course, he was contemptuous of what passed for ethics in the 70s. But he said, uh, when, I, when he created his course, he said, I don't want this to be the military equivalent of what he called ethics for dentists. Now, I, 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 we don't need to worry about the application. Let's just read these great works and, and they'll figure it out. Mm-hmm. And I still think that's largely true. I mean, as you know, a lot of what passes for wisdom and contemporary literature is classical stuff reward in many cases. Yeah. Um, but I would say uh, the, one, the one piece that the, the uh, ancients don't have is this uh, empirical social science piece. Um, 
And I think if you're interested in actually both explaining and affecting behavior, you've got to look at that too. So that's why I've been fairly critical of the character only vocabulary in the military. I think it, it broadens not only your sense of why people do what they do, but also of command responsibility. So you take a situation like Abu Ghraib, you know, you ask yourself, if you'd taken Psych 101 and you ask yourself, if you put some poorly trained uh, reservists in a prison overnight and leave them alone unsupervised, what could go wrong? I mean, mm -hmm. you see, see under Stanford prison experiment, right? Yeah. Those things are going to go wrong. Yeah. Uh, and the people who put them there bear, in my mind, maybe not equal responsibility, but considerable responsibility for failing to foresee what the consequences of setting that up that way would be. Um, so I would say well, one thing I want to, one of my messages to commanders has been, you know, don't just count on the character and integrity of your people. Um, I mean, that's important, but it's only half of the equation. You've got to also look at the corrosive effects of where you're putting it. You know, there, there's this, this in, a, in a sad sense, wonderful book uh, called Black Hearts about the platoon in the 101st Airborne that formed this plot to rape a, an Iraqi girl, murder her family, and burn down the house, and got tried for this. And what's good about the book, in a sick sense of good, is it didn't just happen overnight. I mean, it chronicles how these guys were put in a nearly impossible deployment situation, getting shot at every day for an extended period of time. Other people in the command system knew that there were people in that group who were literally psychopaths, and they did nothing. They just left them there. And so horrible things happened. But was that not totally foreseeable? I think it was totally foreseeable. So, so for the, the, the folks that are, you know, listening to this conversation and saying, you know, my, my appetite is whetted, um, you know, how, how do they approach, you know, the books that you've listed and how, you know, could they, you know, look at and try to understand these first principles? You mentioned that these, you know, a lot of these books are classics rewarmed. Um, you know, what have you seen as far as a successful, you know, self-study program or body study program um, from the folks that you've dealt with? Well, I mentioned this one commander who's now a brigadier general in the Army who uh, had his officers reading these books regularly and had me come in by VTC or occasionally in person to run seminars for them. But, you know, I, frankly, it's very hard for, for practitioners to pick up Plato's Republic and make anything out of it without adult help. Right? Mm -hmm. I think uh, that's not realistic. So one of the things we did in the Sokka course was we added uh, this wonderful little Norwegian novel called Sophie's World. Uh, was a, a novel about the history of philosophy. Um, it, and it's written at a very basic level. The guy who wrote it was a high school teacher of philosophy in Norway. Um, but I had, I had colonels reading it, and they benefited from that a lot. Uh, in my syllabus, I put in all kinds of video links uh, and audio links to things like um, the uh, BBC program, In Our Time, uh, which discusses these things. I've mentioned to you, I think, uh, the History of Philosophy Without Any Gaps podcast series. Um, so I think uh, it's, in most cases, not realistic to say, go read the, the great book and come back and tell me what you got out of it, because the answer will be not much. I mean, <laughs> um, I was saying to my wife the other day, one difference in teaching the same books to cadets uh, compared to teaching it to senior officers is cadets are actually better readers of texts than the senior officers were. And not surprising, because cadets are still in student mode, and so they're so used to reading texts, whereas... When I'm dealing with 05s and 06s, they haven't read a book like this maybe ever, and certainly not since college. Um, and so I don't have high hopes for saying just go read the book or even go read it with your peers. Uh, you're probably going to need some help, which is why I think what you're trying to do with the, the podcast series and the online seminars is really important because uh, if people would participate in that. And I had a few of my students from the War College who participated in your earlier combat and plastic seminars, and 
And those few who did really, really liked yeah, I've, I've experienced the exact same um, phenomenon when we have, you know, done unit visits uh, and we will have, you know, your, your 01, 02, 03. Uh, and it's usually one of those that has conned their 04, 05, 06 into, um, you know, making it quasi-mandatory fun. And the junior officers will have read it. Uh, they will be excited to talk about it and they will... Uh, change their minds on a dime uh, when presented with information that's kind of contrary to, you know, their preconceived notions. But, you know, if the O5 actually read it, uh, it's not going to change his mind <laughs> very often. And that's not, that's not in every situation kind of thing. But, you know, and also it, you know, when you have these types of seminars and you have that, um, that spectrum versus an all O5 group or something like that, at least I imagine, um, you know, they're looked at as the duty expert, right? They're looked at as somebody who should know this. And so it's, it's, it's always been difficult for, not always, there's definitely been exceptions to this, but it's been difficult on occasions for an O5 to participate in the conversation and, and make a comment. You know, like we had a seminar on books nine and 10 of the Iliad um, and I'm, that I'm specifically thinking about. And all the junior officers were, you know, from where they started to where they finished, just in a million different directions about, you know, what, what can they conclude about, you know, the embassy to uh, Agamemnon and uh, Odysseus's night raid. Uh, but the O5 didn't change his mind the entire time. <laughs> you know, he was like, this is how the world works. This is, this is the truth, and I'm not going to change my mind. But that might be just, you know, he can't demonstrate that level of uncertainty in front of, you know, his troops. Well, there's some of that, and also... Uh I thought when I was teaching it, especially difficult texts like uh, Aristotle or Kant, in class, I would have to actually read sections of the text with them mm -hmm. and discuss them. So, you know, not assume that they've read it and we're just going to talk about it based on your understanding of it. Mm -hmm. I have to go through this, you know, line by line in some cases um, and figure out what's being said here because you're not going to get it. Um, yeah. Now, at the Naval War College, unlike all the other services, we have the equivalent of Command and Staff College and War College in the same group. So it was not unusual for me to have a Marine colonel and the, the major who worked for him, uh, you know, in the same classroom. Mm -hmm. And that same dynamic you're describing was sometimes problematic. You know, the reluctance of the junior guy to challenge the colonel. Mm -hmm. So just, you know, a random kind of question, you know, that we can maybe use to, to wrap this up. I don't want to take up your whole morning. You know, if, 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 <laughs> if, uh, you know, the president reaches down and says, you know, Martin L. Cook, you're now my ethics czar for the military. Uh, you know, what, what kind of, uh, you know, programs, what kind of, um, you know, policy changes would, would you make uh, to try to move the needle a little bit in, you know, the fundamental understanding and execution of ethical decisions in the military? Well, you may, do you know that there is actually an ethics czar in the DOD? I actually didn't even know there was an ethics czar. Yes, uh, uh, Secretary Hagel, uh, after the Petraeus firing, I guess, appointed uh, uh, Rear Admiral Ted Klein to be his senior representative on professionalism and ethics. And she's been in that job for three plus years now. Um, and I, so I, and I, when I was at the Navy, I was part of the Navy tag team that, that uh, liaised with her. Mm -hmm. So we, uh, I, I actually know what that's, that job would look like. Um, and it was interesting because uh, if you think about it, uh, she has no positional authority over anybody. The services have their own budgets, they have their own programs. Um, the SECDAF obviously supervises them, but they have their own service secretaries and so forth. So what Admiral Klein did was figure out, since I have no authority to tell anybody to do anything, 
what am I, what, how can I use my position effectively? And what she did really was to serve as an impresario. So she put together a video teleconference about once a month and, and the representatives of each service would come up on the VTC and we would do various things. We would talk about best practices in each service. We would talk about the programs that each service had implemented. Uh, there was a lot of cross-pollination of, of programs. Um, the Army was way ahead of everybody else. They had created this program uh, back in the early 2000s. Uh, the, a fellow named Don Snyder, a retired Army colonel with a PhD taught at West Point, was alarmed that the Army was losing its sense of professionalism. And so he went on a tear around the Army about this. And Dempsey was totally converted to it. So he was briefly the, um, uh, the uh, head of the Army, and then he went on to be chairman. Um, and he got thoroughly uh, uh, dipped into the Snyder language. And all of this is up on that YouTube channel I mentioned you, the Naval War College Ethics YouTube channel, so you can watch Don give talks about this. And I got converted to it, too. I was working for the Army at the time, and I wrote a couple of chapters for this book, The Future of the Army Profession, uh, which became uh, sort of the Bible for this conversation. Um, and the effect of this was every service got more focused on this. Uh, every service now has an, or, uh, an entity, an institution devoted to the development of professionalism and ethics in the service. So for the Army, it's the Center for the Army Profession and Ethic at West Point, cape.army.mil. Uh, for the Air Force, it's PACE, the Professional Arms Center of Excellence in San Antonio. For the Navy, it's the Navy Leadership and Ethics Center at, at Newport. Uh, for the Marines, it's the Lejeune Leadership Institute. And for the Coast Guard, it's the uh, Ethics Center at the Coast Guard Academy. Uh, so those are the people all been talking to each other via Admiral Klein's VTC for the last several years. And so as a result of that, we all know each other. And she got some money out of SECDEP to convene uh, a meeting of all of those centers here at uh, the Air Force Academy last February, uh, which is itself a remarkable achievement, right? Because there's no obvious budget for this because the services own the budget. Uh, this, the second version of that is going to happen this, um, this January, I think, at the Naval Academy. So for the first time, all of the services are talking to each other in a pretty systematic way about what they're doing about these matters um, across the services. So that exists, and I think real progress is being made. Um, CAPE has got some wonderful programs. If you go onto their website, you'll see they've written uh, ethics video games for enlisted guys where you play through a scenario, um, and, and uh, you make choices in the game, and there's little bits of information about the law and, and regulation and so forth. But, the first time I played their game called uh, The High, Higher Ground, I think it is, uh, I deliberately made what I thought were all the wrong choices. And it, it is really badly, but you know, to their credit, they made the game very graphic. You know, the characters in the game talk the way soldiers talk. Uh, horrible things happen. We end up shooting a bunch of civilians at the end of the game. Um, and it has real emotional impact, I think. Um, and so all of the services are trying to figure out ways to push this down at lower and lower levels. Um, the Marines had a total ethics stand down um, and actually did a bunch of this uh, social science stuff and pushed that out to the Marine Corps. Um, so I think it's uh, you know, people who are intimately connected with it would be surprised how much progress has been made just in the last five years about trying to get serious about this. Yeah, that's fascinating. Those are all great resources. We're going we're gonna to put all those into the show notes links. Uh, Martin, thank you a ton. Uh, for taking the time today. I know you're very busy and, um, you know, I really appreciated this, this kind of like level of um, coordination, shall we say, between, you know, because I'm, I'm, you know, in a quasi-official St. John's capacity. So you have this random tiny little arts college in Annapolis that's 
um, reaching out. Uh, so I appreciate you taking the time for our, our humble school <laughs> and well, talking to the St. John's program. Well, we, we appreciate that a lot. Um, so Martin L. Cook, uh, thank you, uh, very much. And, uh, we'll have a link to, uh, Martin's books, uh, several of Martin's videos and, uh, a lot of the books that, that he mentioned today on the pod. If uh, you listeners are interested in further reading, uh, Martin, thank you very much. Okay. See ya.